You're listening to episode 20 of the Floxy Hope Podcast. You are listening to the Floxy Hope Podcast. My name is Lisa Bloomquist Palmer, and our guest today is Ian. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Ian. Welcome. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, 49. Um, I've got a very athletic background, I guess it's fair to say. I was in the Marine Corps for nine years, uh, 2002 Olympian in cross-country skiing or biathlon as well. I was a U.S. ski team member for a long time. I've got two kids, live in Heber City, Utah, work in the ski industry. I'd like to stay healthy and active as much as possible. Awesome. Awesome. You know, you know, getting your perspective, your perspective as, an athlete, as an athlete and not just like, not a, just like a, hey, I go to the gym to type of athlete, athlete, but a literal Olympian athlete, 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 I think is incredibly valuable. And, you know, hopefully you know, some hopefully athletes will listen to this and, and understand that, or doctors of athletes will listen to this and understand that uh, floor hormones would just be devastating to an athlete's career and abilities. So, um can you tell us a little bit about what happened with you with fluoroquinolone toxicity? Sure. So it was, I guess it was the fall of 2008. Um, I was at an event in West Yellowstone, Montana, which is a big work week for me. And I usually like to jump in a race there, which are, they're elite level races. But um, in the past, I was able to maintain a good level of fitness despite being older and working a demanding full-time job, especially in the winter. Um, but this particular year, I got a sinus infection, which wasn't very uncommon because of, like I said, workload plus liking to race and talking a lot and so on. Um, so I got a sinus infection, and doctor gave me Zithromax, didn't get rid of it, and he decided to give me Levaquin, which I, I, don't, I, I had never taken Levaquin before. I had taken Avalox, which is a, the same family as you know. Uh, I think this was the fifth time I had taken Levaquin. Looking back at it now, I know that I had a problem, or that is a fluoroquinolone antibiotic. Um, looking back at it, I know the fourth time I took it, that was Avalox, I had some problems, but of course I didn't associate it with the antibiotic that I would taken. And the first three times, I don't know of any problems that I had had. Anyway, I took the Levaquin. I had no symptoms. I know a lot of people get twitching and anxiety or... Um, tendon issues already when they take it. I didn't have any symptoms at all. felt normal. I went and actually did a ski race, which went really well. Um, I was coaching a girls' soccer team as well uh, at the time. And at the practice, about seven, about a week into the taking the antibiotics, so right about at the end there, I just turned. I wasn't playing soccer. I just coaching and, and turned and tore my calf, my gastroc on my right leg. And which was a big surprise, that kind of thing never happened to me. I guess, you know, people get older, you know, that kind of a thing. So I was surprised by it, and I thought I was, you know, staying positive and I was going to heal. And I was doing all sorts of things to help the healing process, like ice, putting my leg in an ice bucket, which is a pretty common thing for athletes to do to, to um, try to speed a healing process as well as to eliminate inflammation and, and so on. Eventually, I started going to a physical therapist, and any kind of treatment I received only seemed to make things worse. The muscle itself started to heal, but then it started getting bad tendonitis tear symptoms on my peroneal tendon on the same leg. So I thought, well, I suppose maybe 
I injured that as well without realizing it, even though it was nowhere near the gastroc that I had injured. And then my calf continued to start to heal, but my peroneal tendon continued to get worse, which was confusing. And I started going for walks. That was This was a couple months now, and I started to be able to at least go for walks. And then my left peroneal tendon started hurting a lot to the point where it was much more much worse than my right at that particular time and it was confusing to me and it was clearly not normal because there's no reason for for it to hurt you know I could make the excuse for my right one that I somehow injured it when I injured my calf so this became the discovery process where I think most people that have had serious reactions to fluoroquinolones go through I was investigating on the internet. I was going to different doctors. I went to podiatrists, orthopedic surgeons. Um, I was also trying to get better. So I was trying to heal as well as figure out what was going on. So I also went to acupuncturists. I went to, I was getting laser treatments at one point. I got uh, PRP injections, platelet-rich plasma injections, um, obviously massage. I was doing uh, ice massage as well, physical therapy, which again wasn't successful. Are you still there, by the way? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just listening and, and taking and taking notes. So, so when you were going through all of these therapies, the PRP injections, the massage, everything, had you put together at this point that the that it was the Levaquin? No, I hadn't. Okay. A, a friend. A podiatrist, and I think one other person, suggested to me that it was the antibiotics that I had taken, and I thought it was like any normal person. I think I thought it was ludicrous. I'm not a conspiracy theory type person. It just seemed so far-fetched that I could take uh, 21 pills, I think it was in total, over a period of about a week, and then for a prolonged amount of time have these massive tendon issues. I just didn't seem so far-fetched. So I, I made an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon, and the way I identified the guy I wanted to see was I have a friend who runs a ballet studio, and I figured ballerinas, they must, uh, I know obviously they put tons of stress in their lower legs, and there's a big ballet outfit in Salt Lake called Ballet West. It's a very prestigious ballet outfit. So I asked her to find out, if she didn't mind, who the ballerinas go to, for help with their lower leg issues, which they would inevitably have, being ballerinas. And I, I got two names back, and those are the two leading lower leg orthopedic surgeon types in Utah. Um, so I, I made an appointment with one. It took two and a half months to get in and saw, see him. I went in and saw him. Fantastic, fantastic doctor. He didn't want to know anything about me. Uh, I, I prepared a thing. I wrote up a thing for him, you know. And it to him and he said, you know, I don't mean to, I have my, my process, you know, which I, I respected. And so what he did was he had me just stand there and he analyzed, first he analyzed my bone structure to see if I had any kind of misalignments or anything like that. And I didn't. And then he organized my muscular structure. And, you know, sometimes you can tell about a person's development or uh, an injury that happened by looking at the muscular structure and seeing evidence of compensation or using their bodies improperly somehow or lack of development, which might in, 
which might indicate, for example, nerve impingement or something where the muscles aren't being allowed to fire because they're not getting the right impulses. And then he asked me to walk, and I walked, and he examined my gait. And then he said, okay, you have Olympic caliber, and he didn't know I was an Olympian, but Olympic caliber muscular structure, alignment, and gait, everything is basically perfect. So which of the three fluoroquinolone antibiotics did you take? And it, it just completely floored me that he, he drew that conclusion. Every time I say it, I get goosebumps. Yeah, I have, and, I have, I have goosebumps I have, right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's uh, and uh, I went home and for the first time, I took it seriously and, and Googled Levaquin and tendon rupture or Levaquin and tendon or fluoroquinolone and, and tendon. And of course, there's a, just a massive amount of information of, of the problems that people have been having, of their feedback that people were giving to drug companies, from the feedback that people give to one another, advice. Um, obviously, law companies looking to cash in on the class action lawsuit. Just this amazing flood of information. I had no idea. It was kind of like being in a cave with a pen light and then someone turning the lights on and going, oh my gosh, I can't believe that there's so much information. You know, like my eyes get opened. And then from then, from then on, basically, I've known more about this than any doctor I can talk to because I think that's just a normal way of life. If I'm, I'm an expert in many things health-related, and those are all things that I've had long-term problems with. And so in those things, I know generally more than any doctor uh, that you might run into, at least, knows, whereas I, I don't have a medical degree or anything like that. Um, and I'm not, you know, I, there are a lot of things I don't know much about, but when it comes to these certain things, I know a whole heck of a lot about them, more than general practitioners and most specialists, simply because they haven't needed to delve that deeply. They haven't been motivated to delve that deeply into these specifics. Yeah, and having your tendons fall apart is certainly a pretty big motivation. That's yeah. for sure. So so yeah. what did the that orthopedic surgeon, who was obviously familiar with fluoroquinolone toxicity, and like, or at least like what fluoroquinolones can do to tendons, what, what did he say? What did he suggest? The, the guy knows what he's talking about, and he's one of very few people in the medical community that I've talked to or had contact with who actually knew what he was talking about. I, I'm really grateful for having met him. He told me that there's nothing I can do about it, and that it's based on the severity of my symptoms, and that's how he does his prognosis. The, the worse a person's symptoms, the worse the prognosis. In other words, the worse the person's symptoms, the longer it's going to take for you to heal, if at all. The milder the symptoms, if it's handled properly, the, the uh, shorter the length of the, the duration of the symptoms and the severity of the symptoms, you know, which makes sense. So based on the severity of my symptoms... He told me that he would estimate that it was going to take me five to seven years to achieve a partial recovery, and at that point it might plateau, but I would probably never be fully recovered, and again, it would take somewhere between five and seven years. And looking back, I would say his, his estimation was quite accurate. So how that must have been devastating for you to hear that. That, that five to seven years, or, or were you just kind of, how, how did you feel? Like, cause some people hear that and they, and they would go, well, Hey, at least now I have a prognosis and there's, and there's some sort of relief in that. I, I just imagine that as an athlete, that might feel devastating, but 
tell me how you how you actually felt rather than me assuming. Yeah. So there was definitely a relief in actually finding someone who knew what it was, where it comes from, not necessarily knowing how to treat it, but there's there's certainly some validation, and I know you you can identify with that in in having this freak thing that's completely unexplainable that's absolutely debilitating. I mean, I couldn't even go for walks with my wife around our neighborhood. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do, I couldn't, I'm not talking about not being athletically active. I'm talking about if I went for a walk, I could tell two weeks later that I went for a half hour walk, you know, because of my symptoms would get that. I'd tear it up, you know, I was basically disabled. Um, And so it was validating to, and then there was no explanation. It was such a, an extreme thing. It was very demoralizing and confusing to have such extreme symptoms with no apparent injury or diagnosis, nothing known. It was, everyone kind of goes through this, that has had a severe reaction to fluoroquinolones, I'm sure. But so it was very validating and although sad, um, it still made me feel real good to at least make that baby step of progress you know, give me a little hope. Right, right. Yeah, even if it's five to seven years, at least five five to seven years is an amount of time that, you know, you're expecting to to live and get through and and eventually you'll you'll get to that partial recovery. Uh, or at yeah. least, you know, according to him. And it's it's good to hear that, that that has come true. You know, um did you have any of the other symptoms? Like, like a lot of people have psychiatric symptoms. A lot of people like lose their energy and have kind of chronic fatigue, like sin- symptoms, um, GI symptoms. There's, there's a whole, there, there's a huge variety in symptoms. Did you have any of those? It's hard for me to know because first off, I had a, a variety of symptoms. Yes. The, the most, Obvious symptom is the tendon issues. Um, and when I say the tendon issues, there, that's a, in itself a myriad of symptoms. Um, the fluoroquinolone burn, no one knows what that is except for people who have experienced it. Uh, it's this burning that you have, the burning sensation in your tendons that you have. Generally, you notice it the most, at least I notice it the most when I'm at rest. So if I'm sitting in a chair or in bed, that's when it, that's when it's the most because everything's the quietest. And you have this never-ending burning going on in your tendons, which is unsettling. It's a it's a constant negative reinforcement. You know, it it plays in your psyche because if there was if it was like like a regular injury where if you didn't move it wouldn't hurt. You know, except for when it's fresh, that would be one thing. But it hurts all the time, and the pain's not that bad. It just hurts. It's just a reminder that you're injured. And you can't do all these things you want to do. You know, that's kind of what it was for me. And that, that had an effect on my psyche a little bit. It's just this constant reminder, getting up day after day. Um, you know, you get up to go to the bathroom, you get out of bed, and, and you, you're, you continue to be disabled, basically. And I'm a very, I was going to say a very physical person. Maybe that's, you know, no one knows what that means, I guess. I, I really enjoy the outdoors Skiing, hiking, cycling, running, just being in the mountains. And I, I'm grateful to be able to live in the mountains. 
I have a very active lifestyle. My family has an active lifestyle. I love the way I live is it cannot be separated from activity outdoors. And this was cleaving from me. I could not go for a walk in my neighborhood, much less go for a ski bike, hike, etc. And what that also meant was I couldn't do it with my wife and I couldn't do it with my kids. And as you might imagine, their lifestyles became more like my lifestyle. So here I was sitting on the couch saying, hey, get outside, go do something wonderful, enjoy, you know, enjoy the weather and, and the opportunities you all have, you know, go do something and don't do what I'm doing, which is basically sitting on the couch trying to watch TV or, or, you know, occupy myself until I can do the things I really want to do. And, and that was really demoralizing to see that in my own eyes, not obviously not, it wasn't my fault, but I felt like I was failing as a father and I wasn't the husband that I was previously also because I couldn't, let's say lead by example. And I couldn't, uh, transfer my love of the outdoors and activity and celebrate the outdoors as a family the way I could just previously. And, and that's very, very important to me. So, so, let me, so the reason I'm bringing that up is you ask about the other effects. I've had, I'm familiar with the anxiety, with the depression, with some of the other um, psychological, psychiatric type problems that are affiliated with this. I definitely, I, I'm a person who's, I guess I, I'm a glass half full type person and I have a lot of positive energy and I think it's an important, um, it's important to be that way. You know, I, I do believe happiness is a choice. You know, I can have the same life and choose to be unhappy and be unhappy. Or I can say, you know what, I'm going to dwell on the wonderful things in my life and do that and be happy. And... <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's it's still sorry sorry to to interrupt. Like it's it's still hard, and I think that there's still a grieving process, and there's still there's there's still a process of these things were taken away from you, things that you loved, and well, I, I'm and, all about it, baby. <laughs> yeah, and, and to and and to feel some grief and and even anxiety over losing those things is, I think, entirely reasonable. And like, like, are you? So what I'm kind of gathering out of this is that it wasn't necessarily like the anxiety and the grief and the mental strife wasn't necessarily a symptom, but it was a result. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. It's hard to for tell. Sure, for sure. I, I mean, I think it's normal for a person to, to experience, and I know this is being dramatic, but a great loss like that. It is, for me, being kind of self-centered in this respect, as most, as most athletes are, I think it's fair to to say it was a loss, you know, a great loss, not only for me personally, but for me as a father and as a husband. Um, and so it's difficult not to dwell on that, but to, to, to answer your question more specifically, you ask about my symptoms, it's very difficult for me to, to separate the two. You know, I felt powerless, I felt hopeless, I felt like there's a good chance, I couldn't see a light in the tunnel I felt like I was going to be disabled for the rest of my life that, you know, someone else might say, ah, oh, come on. You know, they look at me and they'd say, well, you look healthy and strong. And I mean, what's your deal? And I'm like, you don't understand. I can barely walk. 
I can't do it's not like I can't do these things I love to do. I can't heart I can't really walk. Every time I walk, I tear my tendons. And, and it doesn't just hurt, but it's also for me a sign that I'm never gonna be able to walk again without doing that. And and so there's a certain amount of anxiety and depression that obviously is associated with that. So sure, sure. you know, it's a it's a, a very difficult thing to overcome the way I segueing, if that's okay with you, um, the way I kind of dealt with it was to try to stay as positive as possible. I, I first I tried to everyone goes through kind of a a response cycle. And so of course probably the first cycle, part of the cycle I went through was to try to fix it. You know, I was optimistic and now I'm gonna I'm gonna figure this out and there's gotta be a solution and you know everyone I'm sure goes through that. And and that was a pretty long one. You know, I probably went to three hundred different doctor's appointments, studied all day everything I could possibly do. Um, but I noticed after a while that my efforts to try to improve my situation had an effect on my morale. It was frustrating to put so much effort into it and to continually receive that negative reinforcement of making zero progress. And so what I decided after a while was my sense of well-being in terms of having a positive attitude was more important to me than giving up a slight chance of being able to heal. And I stopped looking for solutions, and I, I stopped being dissatisfied with my life as it was, and I decided to embrace the good things in my life, such as a wonderful wife who I love very much and a great marriage, um, healthy, vibrant children who, when I took the Leviquin, were something like seven and 12 and a job and a career that I absolutely love and I'm grateful for. Um, so there are a lot of things that I, that I could embrace and look at positively. And there's one thing that I guess defines me as a person. And that is, um, I try to take advantage of every, um, I guess you could say chapter of life that I'm in. So, as an athlete, as a full-time athlete, I think I did a pretty good job of not only using the opportunity I had, but also being grateful, savoring it. And then as a young man with a, a budding career, I, I threw myself into that. I threw myself into being uh, a married man with no kids. You know, that chapter I went through. And, and now in the chapter of, of being a father and a husband, but a father of children that are in their teens. My, my oldest one's now at the house and married. But um, And what I really wanted to avoid, and this is my point finally, what I really wanted to avoid was being in a situation where I had so much to be grateful for, but not being grateful. And looking back 10 years later and really having regret, at, despite my difficulties, those could be the golden years, you know, and I think they are. Like right now, in the last, let's say, 15 years, I would say are the best years of my life. And I, I've had this Leviquin tendon problem for eight years now, and it's been debilitating. But I have to say, despite that, I think if, as an old man looking back at my life, if I'm, if I'm lucky enough to, fortunate enough to, to live to be an old man, I think I'm going to look back at my life 
and some of these eight Levaquin years, post-Levaquin years that I've had, will have been some of the best years of my life, despite these terrible difficulties. And I definitely did not want to lose sight of that and have massive regret later, which I think I would have had a hard time living with. You are incredibly wise. And goodness, like I just, I I appreciate that. And I got, I got shivers again. Like that's just, just really profound and beautiful. And I appreciate hearing that so much, you know, of course, these reactions are devastating. Of course, they steal things from us, but to not dwell on that and is, is so important. And like, I understand for the people listening, it can be a process. You know, like you, you can go through the process of being, of being angry. You could go through the process of being fearful. You could go through all of those things. But I think that coming out at a place like where you have come out, a place of gratitude is just so important for living a happy life and for, for healing, you know, whether it be physically or psychologically or um, spiritually, just just finding a place of gratitude, I think, is incredibly important. And thank you for, um, thank you for saying everything that you've that you've said. I think that that's just amazingly wise. Thank you. The reality is, I don't have cancer or some kind of autoimmune disease or something like that. Neither do it's my wife, my children. Um, it this and then to comma this. Uh, Leviquin episode, which has been very painful and lasted very long, didn't happen to my wife or my children. If it had happened to one of my daughters, for example, that would have been so much more difficult for me to handle than having it happen to me, simply because I've taken advantage of... And I'm 49. Um, When this happened, I was 41. Um... I've, I've th- hiked thousands of mountains, and I've relished it. I've, I've skied in Switzerland. I've raced and, and recreated, and, and for me to lose the ability after having taken advantage of it so many years and so thoroughly is not as bad as someone losing the ability when they're just starting to realize that that world exists and how much how many incredible experiences that they could have and, and how much joy they could have and having it robbed from them. You know, it's, it's almost comparable. I don't mean to be dramatic, but comparable to someone losing their life as a young person or as an old person, you know, um, both of them are tragic, but if it had happened to one of my kids, that would have been, that would have been much more difficult for me to handle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now you can protect them to a certain extent. They, they saw what you went through. I'm sure that if a doctor tries to pro- prescribe them Leviquin, they'll say, um, no thanks. Yeah. You know, Lisa, one thing that's baffling to me is uh, I have a brother. I have two brothers and a sister. Um, one of my brothers took Cipro. I think it was a little while after I took the Leviquin. And I was, I think it might've been during the time I was trying to figure it out. But anyway, he took Cipro and he's had problems with his calves, his Achilles since then, but not nearly to the point that I do. I mean, he just, he has some uh, tightness and some muscle weakness. And now and then he has an injury. He continues to be active, play tennis and play hockey and, and other things. And that's great. But I've educated my extended family and all, everyone I know basically as best I can to be, you know, kind of a, a warning voice because I don't want this to happen to anyone else. 
I know that's and obviously part of your motivation. And and so my family members were very educated on this and of how incredibly debilitating it's been. And that my brother has had problems, not to the extent that I have, but you know that he would take if he were to take it again, he would have much greater problems. That seems to how be how it works, you know. You take it once, maybe nothing happens. You take it again, maybe nothing happens, take it again, you get limited problems, you take it again and you're really screwed, you know? <laughs> and anyway, I've had family members since then have take, taken Leviquin. And it blows my mind that they don't learn from what has happened to me, especially because we're obviously related genetically. It just completely blows my mind that they'd be, they'd be so uh, callous, flippant about my experience and not be more or less scared to death about having it happen to them. That really surprised me and honestly offended me. Yeah, it, it is. It is offensive. It, it's like, do you not take my experience seriously? Like, like, do you not yeah. understand that that this has stolen so much from my life? Do you not believe me? And I think it's um, it's hard. Like, that's a really hard thing to go through. Like, I actually had a conversation with my husband this morning about kind of a, you know, do you not believe me? about, about these experiences. You know, I know, I know that I look fine. I know that I'm recovered, but like, this is, this is really something serious. Like these, these drugs are stealing people's lives, you know, and things that are really valuable for them. And it's really hard for people to understand unless they've gone, unless they've gone through it. Um, you know, I, I try to be forgiving because like you were saying at the very beginning, like it's, it's unheard of. It's absurd that an antibiotic could do this. You know, that a commonly prescribed antibiotic could do this. I can tell you as an athlete, the effect that it's had on me, I I would, and I know, I absolutely am not looking to compare my difficulties or injuries with anyone else. I'm not looking for, you know, compassion. I'm just trying to describe the effect. So I hope that's not misunderstood, but I can say if I had been, let's say, in a car wreck, and I had lost a leg, and and then I had help, you know, get kind of patched back together and had some physical therapy and got a an artificial limb or something. I would be able to go out and ski and recreate and function. Of course, I would have lost a limb, and I, I know there's, you know, I'm not minimizing that experience at all. That's not my point whatsoever. But I'm saying there's almost nothing that could have happened to me except for being on my deathbed that would have been more debilitating than to have lost the ability to use my peroneal and my Achilles tendons and actually um, have major problems with my bicep tendon, my left shoulder. But, but bottom line is um, there's not much you can do. I, I can't swim. I can't ski. I can't bike. I can't, for the most part, hike. I can now. I'm getting better some. Um, it's, it's just very little like this. Most of your injuries – you might have some kind of, you know, huge, dramatic injury where you break both your legs or you or you you have to have some kind of joint replacement or limb replacement. None of those are. And again, I'm not trying to minimize anybody else's experiences, but none of that would be as dramatic and as debilitating as this because it's not healing. It yeah. does not heal. Yeah. And I, I think that that's that that's the biggest difference is that those things heal. You know, and and sometimes, you know, I, I 
I think that my body has healed. I think that over time your body has, has gotten, has gotten better, but it's just such a slow, slow process. And it's not like your body is like continually getting better and better. Like you have this one injury, you know, a broken bone or even like a, you know, amputate amputation and not to minimize that. Like that's a huge, huge thing, but, but at least least you know that you're getting better and you're making some progress. With getting better, with getting better with every moment with every after, after, that. after that, and it's hard and to it's tell hard with the floor you know, like when the damage, when the damage stops, stops and when you start healing. It's just just to give the uh, you kind of faded out. Is the sound okay? Oh, I'm oh, I, I'm not one hundred percent sure. I was echoing okay. a little okay. bit, but I think you're, that your sound is you're good still, okay. still okay. You're good. So just just to it's been eight years. And I'm grateful because I've made some significant uh, progress in my recovery. So to give you a snapshot of where I am now, I cannot ride a bicycle. I I can ride the bicycle, but I can't ride a bicycle without tearing tendons. So as far as I'm concerned, that means I can't ride a bicycle. Um, I cannot do anything which creates a need for plantar flexion. Plantar flexion is where you put pressure on the front of your foot or basically use your calf muscle. Use your Achilles, your calf, and your peroneal tendon is also recruited in plantar flexion as well as in stabilizing. Um, But I cannot plantar flex effectively. I can do it, my muscles are strong, and if I do it, then I tear my tendons. And so, of course I can do it, but the point is I'm not looking to tear my tendons and then be disabled. um, I cannot plantar flex. It's been eight years, and I'm super grateful for my current state of, of condition. So that's just giving a little perspective as to um, how debilitating this has been. I'm way better, and I'm super grateful, but I cannot do things that require plantar flexing. I walk differently than I used to. Uh, I have been able to do some hiking. I have massive inserts in my shoes one, uh, first off, I wear boots most of the time, boots that have a little bit of a heel on them because having a little bit of raised heel uh, puts less stress in the Achilles. So that's one one thing after eight years that I'm doing. Maybe Is this a good time for me to start talking about this? Yeah, this is, yeah, perfect. This is perfect. So just to segue, this is these are my current, my current snapshot. I can't really plan or flex, and if I do, I have huge problems. But I've, I've done a number of things to try to get around that. One is my heel is slightly raised. Like I said, I just wear boots. Um, I also have wedges in my heel, but not to raise my heel, but rather to the, the wedges are on the outside is substantially higher than the inside. So the lateral side is substantially higher than the medial side. Substantially higher. In fact, it's so much higher, I, I'm stacking wedges to the point where I'm getting symptoms in other parts of my body because they're out of alignment because I'm stacking the wedges so high. Um, I'll, I'll stack the high, the biggest wedge they make. There's a bunch of different manufacturers that make wedges like this. Valgus wedges is what they would call them, or, and there's a bunch of other different types of names for it. And I'll stack two of the biggest wedges that they make on top of one another, which is absolutely insane. And we'll, it does create problems on the... Uh, medial side of my knees, but I'm I it's I need to balance the two because if I don't use those wedges, I cannot 
stand and walk without tearing my peroneals. These wedges take the pressure off of peroneal tendons to the point where when I'm standing, they're not working at all. Um, so I use those. And then if I go out for a hike and I have been trying to ski, I cannot uh, alpine ski. And for cross-country skiing, I cannot classic ski currently. I could for a little bit, and then it was taken away. I just, I guess I did a little bit too much or, you know, I regressed a little bit. But I can skate. But that's only after changing my technique dramatically such that my weight is on my heel, so there's no plantar flexion whatsoever. And then I use KT tape, which is a flexible cloth tape used by physical therapists. But I use the KT tape in a completely different fashion for what it's intended to. Generally speaking, when you use KT tape, you have two anchor points in the middle. Is The tape is stretched to somewhere around 25% or even 50% of the tape's stretchiness, and that creates a tension which, which helps the tendon or muscle to heal. It takes pressure off it and so on. I don't use it like that whatsoever. I use the KT tape much more as sort of an athletic tape. Um, I stretch it to about 90% of capacity. I run it along my tendons and muscles lengthwise. And now and then I have to cross a tendon, but because the KT tape is flexible, it doesn't create those points of friction, which would create tendon tears where that's what I got years ago when I was playing around with athletic tape. I, would, um, I could support the tendon in the joint, but I would cross over a tendon, creating a point of friction in the sheath of that tendon, which inevitably, because my tendons were so weak, created more tears. So I've, I've made some huge progress in how to manage this using KT tape, and then I use cloth tape in strategic places. It's, a super, it's called Loico tape. It's a very, very strong, super sticky cloth tape that I put on top of the KT tape, only like four inches here, four inches there, strategically placed, not crossing any tendons at all. Um, and after doing that, I can ski like a person who's got major problems with his tendons. Another person would see me skiing and say, wow, he looks fine, he looks great, he's skiing great. But the reality is I can barely walk when I'm done skiing not because of the skiing, but that's just because that's how it is. Um, this morning, my tendon, my peroneal tendons especially are super inflamed and very tight. Um, they hurt when I'm in bed. They hurt when I sit. They hurt when I stand. Both legs. I think it must be something that happens seemingly regularly. You've got two peroneal tendons, the longest and the brevis. The brevis, uh, there's a longer one and a shorter one. They lie on top of each other, um, especially just after it goes around the ankle bone. And I think I regularly split where one has so much pressure, it's so tight, it, it puts pressure on the one beneath it and it splits it, um, creating a, a lengthwise tear. That seems to happen to me at least once a month, maybe. And so I have constant pain which is pain if I do something or if I don't do something. It's a different pain than if I were to go out and try going for a jog or go for a bike ride. That would then tear the tendon, whereas this, these tears happen seemingly regularly whether I do any activity or not. That's my assessment. So I, I have regularly torn peroneal tendons, regular pain, but 
I do think the activity is good for me as long as it's very controlled um, to the point where I'm not tearing the tendons because of the activity. Because my tendons, tendons are tearing anyway. Even if I, I, I have torn my tendon, this was now three weeks ago, it happened again and it happened again last night. I was in bed both times watching a ski race on the internet, lying in my bed, and my tendons felt tight, so I, I turned my ankle in a circle, not manually, but using my muscles of my leg to do it. I just simply rotated my, my lower leg. And when I did that, I tore my tendon. I mean, that, that's, that's eight years after taking it. And I'm not trying to get sympathy or anything. That's not my point. I'm just trying to, the only reason I'm mentioning this is to kind of draw the point that this is something that is debilitating and it lasts probably the rest of my life. I'm sure I can have strong problems with this. Um, I've, I've changed how I do everything. It's a debilitating permanent injury as far as I'm concerned, at least to the level that I've had it. I, I also probably want to qualify if you don't mind. I'm not the expert on this, but I know of many cases uh, that are much worse than mine. I don't know of them personally. I'm the, I'm the worst case that I've personally met. But I know uh, I have a friend who's a physical therapist, uh, a bunch of doctors, and you know everyone starts talking about it when they realize that you've had issues with this. I know of two cases where there was an elderly person who was, one was getting a, a heart, he had a heart infection, and they were, they were working on him, and the other one was getting, uh, I'm sorry, a lung infection, and the other one had, was getting a heart operation. And both of them, obviously different, different episodes, different occasions, were put on a fluoroquinolone antibiotic, I believe both of them were Leviquin drip through an IV. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in both cases, during the operation, the operating doctor heard a strange noise coming from the table and what he heard was both Achilles tendons rupturing of the person who was on the operating table, even though, of course, nothing was being done to the person below their waist. Both Achilles tendons ruptured on the operating table because of the Leviquin drip they were on. They have a, a, a friend who treated a, a farmer who lived nearby his, his clinic, who was a physical therapist. A farmer was, was put on Leviquin for uh, an, an infection that he had, just a small thing. And he was going up his stairs and one of his legs gave out and then his other leg gave out and he fell down the stairs and he found he couldn't stand, but he was able to prop himself up. This is a tough farmer guy, prop himself up and he was able to lock his knees out and then walk kind of like Frankenstein to the clinic just down the street to this physical therapist friend of ours. And what had happened, he had ruptured both of his, completely ruptured both of his patella tendons, which is one of the things that happens when you take Leviquin. So I'm, I, I'm very aware that I'm grateful that I, I was very close to having, be, having to be in a wheelchair. And I think if I had been in a wheelchair, I never would have gotten out of it. And um, so I have that perspective as well. I, not only do I not have cancer or some kind of autoimmune debilitating autoimmune disease and not only did it not happen to my family members but I'm very aware that I'm very close to having had been in a wheelchair which would have been lifelong so I'm 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 very grateful for that I, I might sound bitter when I'm describing my symptoms and um, you know all the things that many many things that I've tried to do to overcome them and also to manage them continually but the reality is I'm really grateful I know I dodged a bullet 
And whatever I can do, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do it. That, that's just an amazing, inspirational perspective. And I really appreciate it. You know, you don't sound like you're whining at all. You sound very matter of fact when you talk about, about your injuries. And certainly I know that I dodged quite a bullet. Um, you know, a, a lot of people see this, this activist work and just kind of my continuing attention on it is kind of, uh, I, I don't, I don't know, like, like me claiming that I had it worse than I did. And, and I know I didn't have it that, that bad, but there are other people who have, and, you know, there, these stories deserve, deserve attention because we need to stop doing this to people. You know, it, it's, Lisa, it's devastating. I am super grateful for your efforts personally. Like I, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, gratitude gets me emotional sometimes. I, I'm really, really grateful for your efforts. They have given me a sense of community. I, I don't personally, I, I personally know maybe five people that have had real issues. And when I want to say really, I mean any issues with Levaquin. Six people. I've had a flood of people that I don't know respond to the information I've given out and said, you know, my, my mom, my sister... You know, I or or I took it for a couple of days, and I remembered what you said, so I stopped taking it. And wow, I'm so glad I did. That that has probably happened to me a thousand times. That right there, and they're so grateful that I was very loud, and and I still do this drum beat, as you as you know, but uh, this drum beat of hey, careful guys, careful, careful. I don't want this to happen to you. Careful, the medical community is not looking out for you, so just please keep this in mind because I don't want it to happen to you. And so you know that drum beat. Um, uh, I put that out, but the reality is, despite knowing some people that have had these issues, I know there's a, a very large community that has had a sense of loss and, uh, and have had to struggle mightily the way I have. And I kind of consider you to be one of the organizers of the community. Obviously, there are others. And I, it really means a lot to me on a personal level. Like, I'm a, I'm a friend for life. You. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for the voice that you've given us, for the activism you've, I mean, you know, there have been changes. There have been repeatedly added black box warnings, most recently, as you know, because you were involved with it, the, the permanent nerve damage warning. Um, I mean, you know, I'm not willing to do that. I've, my choice, my road was trying to be positive, trying to live my life in a positive manner and embrace the now, live in the now as, as, as disappointing as it might be to kind of let the positive stuff drown out the negative and, and embrace that. And, and your way in my mind is, is in a sense doing all of us who have been, have to battle this a huge favor because um, you've given us a voice and a sense of community. And of course you've taken great efforts to, on a much larger scale than my efforts, although I've tried hard to prevent this from happening to millions more people. So I'm super grateful for your efforts and I'm a, I'm a fan and a friend for life. Oh, thank you. Uh, likewise. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to talk to the people who are listening to this podcast. Goodness. I really hope that the sound is okay. Like with our technical difficulties earlier, because you've just, you've just given so much value and, um, you know, your, your, 
your spirit of just gratitude and selflessness, uh, really shines through. And I, I appreciate that so much. Um, is there anything else that you would like to say while we're still recording? Um, any words of advice or, um, anything else that you'd like to share with the people who are listening? Well, this would be maybe just a message to those who are struggling. I know there are tons, tons of people who are, who have either haven't identified it yet, but, but there are tons of people who have taken a fluoroquinone antibiotic who are in a state of helplessness and hopelessness. I'm, I'm not necessarily optimistic in terms of the ability to heal, but I have to say I should also say too, um, after this, there's another aspect of, of, of my difficulties that I should mention because it hasn't been mentioned by anyone else. So I'm not even sure that it's a common symptom, but I'm sure it's related to my Leviquin. But to go back to the message, I was in a funk for sure for a while. And, and part of that funk had to do with what I was, what a little reveal in a little bit here, but, um, as, as terrible, as flippant as, as, you know, happiness is a choice and that kind of an attitude, as flippant as that sounds, there's a lot of truth to that. And it's very, this might not make sense, but if a person can read and doesn't read, I'm not sure that's, I think it's kind of worse than a person who doesn't know how to read and can't read. Like, um, there's, there are a lot of good things in all of our lives. And if we don't celebrate those good things, are they good things still? You know, are we, I think it's incumbent upon us to, to recognize and celebrate the good things in our lives. Um, I think it's, it's it's part of being gracious, grateful, and and if we dwell on our loss, on our difficulties, which I've certainly had, and I know you know they're out there. If we dwell on that as 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 normal as that is, I think we are basically living without those good things in our lives. You know, if you don't recognize them and celebrate them. Are they really in your life, even though they are? Like, for example, I am super grateful for my wife and the relationship we have and how we're just two peas in a pod. You know, I'm, I'm lucky, fortunate. And for me to dwell on my sense of loss, my, my sense of not being able to do the things that I love to do so much, my sense of being alive, you know, I... Just to just to just to reveal something like I, it's stupid. But as an athlete, one thing I absolutely love is the feeling of suffering, <laughs> of being anaerobic or or eking out that last rep. I love that. It's not that I'm a masochist. It makes me feel alive. I I love that feeling because it makes me feel vibrant and alive. And and I've lost that. Now I'm starting to get it back again, thank, thankfully. But but there was a, a long period of time I could not go anaerobic if I wanted to. You know, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't go to the gym. I had all these injuries and tears. I couldn't I couldn't 
go for a run. I couldn't ski. I tried swimming and ended up tearing my shoulder up. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything that made me breathe hard from physical effort. Mm-hmm. You know, I could hold mm-hmm. my breath, but that's not the same, of course. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and it really bothered me because I felt like I was dying in the vine. Like, you know, I didn't feel like a man, not like macho man, but like I just didn't feel like myself. You know, I, I completely lost myself. And, and um, the music I would listen to, I used to listen to very upbeat Music that was had a beat or something you'd work out to. Uh, that was the kind of you know energy and vibe I had. I was listening to some really slow, you know, kind of depressing music. You know, comforting music. <laughs> you know, it just changed my vibe and my energy. And so I understand the loss. I understand that. I, I and I still have that. But my point is, if we do not celebrate, and I mean this like from the bottom of my heart, sincerely, please listen to this. If we do not celebrate the good things in our life, if we do not acknowledge them, if we're not happy for them, if we do not enjoy them, they're not really in our life. You know, you're, you are taking that out of your life. Here's another silly example, but is very important to me. You see this fantastic sunset. You know, it's a, it's a sunset. Just This actually happened. I was standing there looking at the sunset, and I didn't allow myself to enjoy the sunset because I was, I was so upset about it. Something it was it was not Levaquin actually, but it was something similar. It doesn't matter. But my point is, I was feeling sorry for myself about something, and I wouldn't enjoy let myself enjoy the sunset, which was a gr- absolute gift. And I caught myself in that thought process, and I kind of slapped myself in the face and said, "Are you kidding me? You haven't. If you're not, how could you not enjoy that? Because." Simple pleasures are kind of the ultimate in, in, in gifts. And if I'm not allowing those gifts to come into my life, then I'm basically not – they're not in my life. I might as well live in a, in a basement with no windows, you know? Um, so that's my – I guess my bottom line in terms of coping is to focus on the good things in your life, celebrate them, enjoy them, because if you get caught up in – Dwelling on the difficulties, they might as well not be in your life because you're not recognizing them. And that's a huge loss, bigger than the difficulties in the first place, in my opinion. Right, right. You have to corroborate in letting those things go. And, and Levaquin steals plenty from people. Cipro, Avalox, those drugs steal plenty from people. But, but letting, letting them... Becoming miserable and not appreciating the other things in your life that make your life good, that's something that you have to be an active part, of, part in. I appreciate that. I think that that's a really wise and beautiful lesson for people. Thank you. Lisa, there's a symptom that I, I haven't mentioned. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I guess it probably makes sense to mention it since we're talking about after effects. Do we have time for that? Yeah, yeah. go for it. So... Kind of like with the tendon symptoms, initially I didn't um, affiliate this with the fluoroquinolone antibiotic they had taken, but it clearly was that exactly. I started getting terrible, painful vertigo. I my eyes hurt really, really badly, and it would at the computer, any kind of fluorescent lighting, but especially the computer. <clears throat> um, and with my job, I work a lot at a computer, 
like most people, many people, um, it got to the point where I would get this headache, really bad headache working the computer, but I wouldn't move. And then I would get up to, I don't know, go eat lunch or something. And I would want to throw up from nausea and I couldn't hardly walk in a straight line. And it hurt really bad to move my eyes. It hurt me badly to move my head and my, in other words, to track. So not only to move my eyes, but to move my head so that my eyes were tracking. It was incredibly painful and it got worse and worse and worse. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I went to all sorts of eye specialists. I had MRIs done. Also, they were talking about having, uh, uh, I maybe had aneurysms. I had perhaps uh, shut off of blood flow in somewhere in my neck that, you know, was giving me problems. Um, it was identified eventually that they thought that my optical nerve was having similar symptoms than my tendons, such that it was all messed up, but there was a lot of fluid in the sheath that the optical nerve was in, and such that my optical nerve was not functioning properly. And so my balance was messed up, especially if I were to turn my head or move my eyes. It was incredibly painful, and it got to the point where the only semi-comfort I could find was to basically roll up in bed in a fetal position and put a blanket over my head so it was dark and just just be quiet and lie still. That was my only way of finding some kind of comfort. And I would do that at two in the afternoon. I'd do that at 10 in the morning. You know, it wasn't a nighttime thing. It was a, it was a, I'm, I just got off a roller coaster for those who are not comfortable on roller coasters. You know, that, that feeling you get, I, it was like that all day, every day. And it was, it was far worse than my tendon issues, as bad as they have been. It was something that absolutely destroyed any kind of quality of life I had whatsoever. And it got to the point also, very quickly, that I could not look people in the eye anymore because I was in such pain, they thought I was super pissed off. <laughs> they thought I was really, really angry. And I wasn't at all. I was just in terrible pain. And so my, my, my wife, my kids, and my wife was... She needed constant reassurance from, my, from me that I wasn't angry at her and that I loved her and everything was fine because I looked so angry just from the intense pain. And um, I don't know that I did anything to get it to go away except for one thing. I tried to avoid fluorescent lights, but the main thing that made me better was I went through about 30 different computer monitors the advice that I found on the internet <clears throat> was to get a monitor and then do, I think it was speed up the refresh rate as high as possible such that it didn't have that strobe effect, you know, the blinking strobe, strobe light effect, yeah. which, which had an effect in the brain and the eyes and, and everything. And, and I, that didn't help me at all. So I kept getting these monitors that had super high refresh rates and, and they, they were killing me. It didn't help one bit. And I, was, and I was going to the lowest refresh rates, and that was just as bad or worse. And the one thing I did was I got some really old CRT monitors. Those are the ones that are huge. You know, not flat screen, but the, the big ones with the, I guess, tubes or whatever in them. Uh -huh. And I got some of those. I'm sorry? Yeah. Oh, I, sorry. I was just saying uh-huh. Yeah. So the CRT, I, I went on eBay because they're, they're no longer able to be manufactured in the United States, and I think worldwide due to environmental concerns. So I, I got on eBay and I bought the crap out of them. I, I bought like 10 of them. 
thinking, well, they're only going to last for six months or something because they're all old. They're all used. And, uh, and I need to get a, a stockpile of these because, um, I mean, I want to be able to continue functioning in my job. And so I got all these old, old, huge monitors, and I was playing around with the refresh rate, and I got it so that it would work pretty well. I could, I could get by. And, you know, spreadsheets would mess me up. Anything I had to really focus on carefully. Um, I do a lot of uh, graphics. Um, I'm blanking on the, uh, you know, computer graphics. I do a lot of web page development and image manipulation or, or you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I have to focus on the computer screen, and, and that was an issue for me for sure. But um, because of that, I believe, and maybe there were other factors, it slowly started to recede. And now um, I'm like 80%, 90% better in that respect, so it's not a huge problem. But it was so debilitating for about a year. It was an absolute, I, I know it's a bad word, but hell, because that's what it was. I mean, you know, it's a place too, right? <laughs> or a condition. I mean, it was, it was the, I had no solution. No positive thinking could overcome that. No, um, I had no options whatsoever. And I went to tons of specialists for that as well. And I'm just so grateful that I was able to overcome that because I had no answers for that one. That was something where I, I'm a very positive person. I have a lot of things to be grateful for, but I, I considered my options in terms of suicide or, you know, how to, how to, I had no options. I had no solution whatsoever. And I wasn't close to suicide, but I actually seriously considered it simply because I had to consider my options and that was the only option that seemed to make sense. Right. <laughs> so, you, I mean, that you, was really, really tough. You know, just kind of going down the path of like, well, what if I can't work anymore? And what if I can't provide for my family anymore? And, you know, what if I, what, what if I can't do these things that I need to do anymore? I think it's just, it's a terrifying thought. And that, a lot of people go through it. That, that's certainly valid. I mean, of course, those are, those are major points of identity for people, for a sense of purpose, for wanting to be useful. I mean, that's also very, very important, but I'm talking about even more. It was a question of getting through the day without feeling intense nausea every minute of the day to the point where all you could do is lie in bed with a blanket over your head. I mean, that's a whole other level. You yeah. know, I was, uh, of course, I was worried about providing for my family, but I was also intensely worried about simply how do I, how do I get to tomorrow? Right. How do I how do I not completely make my marriage blow up because I'm not only not contributing anything to my relationship and to my family, but I'm actually this massive downer where even though I was trying to be as positive as possible, I seriously could not look at someone without them thinking I was about to break their nose, you know? <laughs> Despite right. my best efforts to look cheerful, I was in such intense pain. And and that's a huge, huge thing to overcome. I mean, there's no answers for that. So right. that was another one of my symptoms, and I'm so grateful that that was taken away from me for whatever reason. You know, I still have a whole bunch of old computer monitors, but I now I've graduated to a flat screen, and I'm I'm mostly problem free. So, but I haven't chucked my I I threw out some of them, but I still have a few just in case. <laughs> yeah, C congratulations on getting through that. You know, like it sounds it sounds horrible. 
That sounds was, really hor- really horrifying. So, so yeah, uh, I'm I'm glad that you have you know gotten to the place in life that you're that you're at right now. It sounds like you're you're in a good place. I'm glad that that symptom went away, and I know that that the tendons. The, the 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 tendons are what they are, but but I'm glad that you've you've made some progress and you're 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 finding some things that help you and and are able to you know get on the slopes even though even though it's a little bit even though it's a little bit different. But kind of more than anything, like I'm I'm, I'm glad that you expressed just how to get through this psychologically and emotionally, and. I think that everything that you've said has been incredibly valuable for me. I think it'll be really valuable for the people who are listening. You know, um, I, I, I've just been going through some kind of like psychological stuff, uh, over the last couple of days and just hearing you say, you know, um, accept gratitude into your life and choose happiness and recognize, recognize your blessings, I think has it, it was a valuable thing for me to hear. So I appreciate it. Hey, Lisa, can I say one more thing? Of course. <laughs> I, I, it sounds like you're winding it down, but um, I, I'm taking this seriously as you are. And, and I hope that if I can improve someone's situation, even if it's one person, heck, I, I've talked in the middle of the night to people who, who have called me because I knew that I knew about this and they took one of these drugs and their bodies are falling apart. I'll, I know what they're talking, what they're feeling and the hopelessness and all I have compassion with and motivation to see if I can help to no end. And so I hope you don't mind one more tidbit of, I guess, my experience. Um, as an athlete, you lose your ability to be the least bit physically active. Most athletes are one dimensional, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, <laughs> you know, that's all you want to do, you know, um, it was a, one thing that helped me tremendously, although I didn't enjoy it in the beginning, was this whole thing when one door closes, another one opens. I didn't want to open that door. I was pounding and pounding and pounding on the closed door, which was the, I want to go skiing, I want to hike, I want to bike, I want to, I want to be physically active. <clears throat> I was just pounding and pounding in that door, and I knew the other door had opened. <clears throat> I mean, we all have a lot of opportunities and doors, so to speak. I just didn't want to take it because that's not what I wanted to do. But eventually, I took another door, and I took the opportunity to learn Spanish, and I traveled a lot to Latin America, and I learned a lot about the world and other cultures, and and it's blessed my life tremendously. I've become maybe a a better, more rounded person, more patient, for sure less self-absorbed. I think it's safe to say I'm a better father and husband than I was. I mean, there are a lot of things that a person can shift gears in as long as they're flexible. Um, to actually become, let's say, if not a more rounded person, well-rounded person, I hate to use the word better, but maybe even a better person in that you have more perspective on life, you're more patient, you might be, you know, like I said, a better dad or, you know, less self-absorbed or or maybe have, uh, I, I just think that there's oftentimes if we're, if we are able to shift gears and be flexible and to, to go through that door that you really didn't want to go through because you would have gone through it before, you know, <laughs> you don't need to have some kind of physical debilitating or even uh, more than physical debilitating condition to go through. It, it's, I mean, what the heck, uh, make the best of it and, and see if you can grow in another direction. 
and then maybe the situation will change and you can look back and say, you know, that was a good thing I did. And I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for this situation that I was in, but I'm glad I did it and, you know, kind of make the best of it. Yeah. It's really important. I, I agree completely. And I certainly became a more patient person. After going through the, the fluoroquinolone toxicity, I became a more compassionate person. There are, <laughs> there are a lot of things that I, or that a lot of people I just wouldn't, I would have disregarded their, their pain in the past. And I hate to admit that, you know, like for mysterious diseases, diseases like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, like, like, I don't think I was ever hostile, but I certainly didn't make an effort to try and understand. And now I understand, at least on some level. You know, I can't, I can't claim to empathize with everyone's situation, but at least, at least I can try to empathize with other people now who are going through some, some sort of mysterious disease or something that is, that is under-recognized. And I, I appreciate that compassion that I have. I appreciate that I can see other perspectives now. I appreciate the patience that I was given. There's a hell of a way to get those things, but such is life. I mean, to build on that, if, if you have ever known anybody who's been clinically depressed, the only people that can identify with that person are people that have also felt deep depression themselves. And just as an example, and I think that's comparable to some of these things you just mentioned. And at that point, when a person has the understanding of that, they're in a position to help a lot of people. Whereas if a person hasn't had that experience, they might be good-hearted, but they, they simply are not able to empathize, not able to really identify or connect with that person in a really meaningful way. So that's one reason why I'm so motivated. If, if people, I mean, basically oftentimes it's the shoulder to cry on. I mean, I don't have, I have plenty of advice, but the reality is, you know, advice, I don't know what's that worth, really. Everyone's got their own journey. Um, but if someone wants to talk to me, I'm all ears and I've got patience and compassion without end when it comes to some of these types of things because I, I, I feel like it's a, it's a gift in a sense to be able to empathize with other people and give them comfort, which very few people can give. Right. Right. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. And um, I'm going to wrap things up. We have been talking for uh, a, a while now. So um, I just want to thank you, Anne. Like you have, you have given such inspiration and value in this. And, and you are just a generous, a generous human being. And I appreciate the offer of support and all of the wisdom that you have offered. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. I'm grateful for the platform that you've given everybody. You, you bet. It's my, it's my pleasure. <laughs>